I'd like to invite you on a walk. The games we play are often preparation for the rest of life. The constraints that we play within allow us to hone aspects of our relationship with the environment that make it easier to adapt when the environment changes as it inevitably does. All wars require some sort of coordination between combatants. Many civilized societies engaged in a sort of warfare that required many agreements to enact. In the Western way of war, this led to a preference for direct conflict. The decisive battle settled on a field that convinces the populations of both armies involved of who is to be where in the geopolitical hierarchy after that decisive battle. However, it's not just the Greek and Roman and Anglo tradition that emphasized direct warfare, where people were often engaged in some tacit agreement to meet on a field of battle, though you'll note, as in the case of the war with Carthage, that these tacit agreements were broken, and perhaps that might be part of the extra harshness or total destruction that Rome enacted on Carthage, that once both parties had moved to a war that did not meet these tacit agreements, that they had involved larger complexities. And part of those complexities result in emotions in the population that might cry for total dominance as opposed to a compromise along the way, which is usually more energy efficient. When you see most animals fight in the wild, they typically don't fight to the death. There's a quick exchange about the same length of time as most street fights, which is to say the exchange is typically decided within 30 seconds, and then the animals go on their way. So it's more a mechanic that is used to determine who gets to be where. Where your place is in the environment. Where your place is in the ecological hierarchy. So, many civilizations came upon tacit agreements of how to wage war. 
that often involved some form of meeting on specified battlefields on purpose. This happened in South India, it happened in Central America, and it happened in Europe. You might probably be most familiar with it in the form of the Age of Chivalry, chivalry where European landed classes had agreements of how to wage warfare amongst themselves. And there's a similar class-based ritualization of warfare in all these societies, with the exception of the Europeans at that time, I suppose, besides the peasants. Uh, historically, the part of the spoils of raids and wars uh, is slaves. So you engage in some sort of warfare, and the winning side gets to take slaves home, and that's the the largest part of the wealth gained by war, or why war not only paid for itself, but was a profitable business until the last couple centuries. And now we see war as this immensely costly thing to, to all parties. Which it is, and, and always has been in a way, because violence takes a lot of energy. Conflict takes a lot of energy. But, in the past, you could at least be rewarded for that. In a way that you are only really rewarded now, in our society for engaging a form of more indirect conflict through business or media control, the control of the narrative. So, in the past, you had these forms of ritualized warfare. They had certain constraints on them. There was an idea of what was honorable and dishonorable. In the case of the Central Americans, perhaps, the, some of the losers might be taken and sacrificed. But it's all, again, very ritualized, right? So the reason for all the fanfare, all the banners on, say, European knights, the war paint on other groups, uh, the feathers, the pomp, the grandeur, all of that is to heighten the ritual so that the conflict is probably remembered better in the population. And it adds to its own contained reality. And maybe without this, there would be more forms of something that what we might call total warfare, which is to say warfare with fewer constraints. And you can sort of see how these things clash. In the American Revolutionary War, there were units that used tactics that we would now call guerrilla tactics, where militias would wear clothes that would more likely blend in with the environment, and they would melt in and out of that environment to attack the British. And of course, parts of the British army would call that extremely dishonorable 
preferring to fight, as most European units of that time, in a field of battle where there's a sort of agreed-upon way of conducting war. You line up, both of you line up, in the same way that spearmen might have lined up in the past, and you shoot at each other until one side routes or decides they've had enough and surrenders or runs away. The beginning of the American Civil War started in a similar manner, though it was pretty quick for the shock and horror of what artillery could do at that time to get to all sides involved, which resulted in, again, a changing of the the rules of warfare. So you have this pattern again and again. In ancient Greece, and most ancient places, in fact, uh, in our past, there were long traditions of war sort of losing its teeth, or most of its teeth, and turning into some form of game. That is to say, a sport. Either some sort of wrestling, or sometimes even even full-scale battles, as in the Western European melee tournaments, or even the gladiatorial gladiatorial and Colosseum entertainments of Rome, though those perhaps show a, a a change a little bit compared to the other forms of sport in that here now the audience became perhaps more important than the players themselves. The games were, in that case, something that was incentivized and shaped by the watchers, which is something we take for granted in sport today, even though that changes the very nature of the sport. To have a sport that is for an audience is very different from having a sport that is for the players themselves. Because what may appear to be boring to an audience might be the height of competition among players. And vice versa. Which is kind of why in combat sports, and especially in grappling, you might actually find it way more entertaining to watch amateurs, such as myself, rather than people who are extremely skilled. Because as amateurs, we make mistakes, we use way more energy than is necessary, which results in more explosive movements, which allows for a more dynamic show. In addition, there's an emotional element with amateurs that is easy to get into, but with someone like, take, take for example, Miyamoto Musashi, the duelist, who won over 60 duels to the death in Japan, and is known as something of a philosopher, poet, and warrior, the, the attitude 
behind that while entertaining probably in a trickstery way is probably not as entertaining as the emotional struggle between two people who you can read easily because someone who's really experienced like that someone who has a lot of competence to shape the chaos of the fight or to respond to the chaos of the fight and thrive in it might not be as obviously emotionally involved because they're going to have a certain sort of detachment, a certain sort of spaciousness that doesn't play well. If you think about war dances in many cultures, those war dances have really expressive faces, really strongly emotional expressions that are almost mask-like so that you can read them as easily as you can read the emotional points of an anime TV show. So, those obvious emotional conflicts, that expression, may not show up in someone who is on top of their game. You might find in modern MMA a comparison between Conor McGregor, who is a performer, first and foremost, I believe, more than an athlete, more than a fighter. He's a performer. And you can contrast him with Fedor Emelianenko, who might be better seen as simply a fighter, uh, an artist of the art, though he is a fighter's fighter, not really an audience's fighter for the most part, because he doesn't really make many expressions. He doesn't really look like much, he just looks like some large dad <laughs> with a beer belly. Uh, but, of course, he totally dominates at the sport of MMA. However, it's probably hard to get as involved with his fights as you might get involved with Conor McGregor's fights without knowing anything about the sport, without having ever tried it yourself, without ever having thrown a punch or taken a punch. You can sort of see a Conor McGregor fight and see what it's about. It's about that emotional conflict between who's better, me or you, which because it's a simple model of status and exchange of status becomes more interesting to us than some sort of niche exchange of status that is only really open to people who are already involved within that scene, within that game. When the United States entered into Vietnam, they were still thinking about World War II. The tactics and strategy also had something of World War I in it with the emphasis on artillery, which are things that are extremely useful for repeated constant attempts at decisive battle by two sides as 
happened in World War One again and again, which anyone can see takes a lot of resources, a lot of lives. And they really weren't prepared with that strategic style to face the Viet Cong, who viewed the war as a total field of persuasion rather than an opportunity to find decisive battles that would end the war. You can sort of see how our sports reflect this difference. The sport of freestyle wrestling is generally about some form of total dominance. It emphasizes three minutes of extreme energy use where you're trying to pin your opponent down. You're trying to stay on top. You're trying to pin your opponent down. The other person is typically the same size as you, about the same strength as most combat sports are now. And part of the reason for that is that it is very, very difficult to fight someone larger than you, and it is that much more dangerous, especially if strikes are involved. However, if we look at the early form of BJJ and Judo and the feats that the popularizers of those practices engaged in, it wasn't actually in a sport arena that had time limits or scoring by points. It was some sort of submission-only, no-time-limit agreement. And that results in a very different kind of attitude. Instead of training all the time for an explosive three or five minutes, you might take on a completely different view of conflict. You might take on something that better represents what the Viet Cong did, what the Taliban did, to guard your energy wisely, to only attack when your opponent has given them given you a clear gap to use as little of your strength as possible while trying your best to use your opponent's own strength against them which is what all these insurgencies did and Besides Chechnya, it does look like 
they're doing better than large, expensive militaries. The problem with warfare as a skill is that you're never going to be able to mimic that feeling of your life being on the line. So it's useful to have as many ways as possible to practice. And sport is a method we've come up with to play just as puppies play with each other or play with their stuffed toys, are preparing to hunt, are preparing to help sort their status in a hierarchy, are preparing to guard their territory against other packs. But while puppy play and the play of many animals tends to be more fluid, where you can sort of go in and out of it, our rules introduce rigidities that make it more difficult to adapt. So, for example, in the same way that a entire officer corps that is raised on a particular sport might have trouble playing the game of war in a way that does not match that sport if they pursue a singular sport. A country might have an issue with engaging in a form of warfare that has a wider range than the mental states that might be required for a particular sport. Wrestling is an excellent combat sport because the chances of getting permanently injured when you are young are actually relatively low, certainly lower than boxing or some other striking art. But the way that we play that game now is constrained to a couple minutes and the entertainment of an audience so that instead of being able to simply use it as a model of war we might lead ourselves into using it as a model when it might be best as a model of a decisive battle. So if you have an agreement between two armies to meet on a field of battle and decide the war once and for all, then for an individual, wrestling is a good model, possibly the best model we've ever had. Certainly better than chess. So it thrives there. However, in our society, with industrialization and with debt, 
we emphasize these moments in our lives instead of living the same way every day. Musashi emphasizes the importance of fighting in the same way that you walk every day. So that there's no real separation between the two. And this way might be perhaps more similar to what an insurgent might do, what a member of the Mujahideen or the Viet Cong might live like, where your fighting is simply a part of your life. You don't necessarily do anything special for it. You don't go through the extreme training that a world-class athlete or a U.S. military member might. Instead, you live your life and you defend your home. This philosophy does not lend itself as well to being tested in many combat sports as they exist today because of the element of time and scoring. If you have an element of scoring that makes it more likely that you are going to play it to those scores, which is about the same as playing to measurements of enemy killed to decide whether you're winning a war or not. Because, again, as we know from Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, that those measurements don't necessarily lead to the true object or the true aim of the game if you're trying to win. If you're trying to win a war, you need to persuade the people involved to join you. The point of all war would be a peace that is acceptable to all sides in the same way that two animals might come across each other in their territory and fight, and after they fight, they go in peace. So without that purpose in mind, and with more of the purpose of the point, the point scored, the measurements involved, it is very difficult in the long term to win against an enemy that fights like nature. That fights like the rest of nature. That fights in the same way water flows down a hill. And we lack that model currently because we tend to emphasize what we can measure, what is most entertaining, and what we can fit into a short time period. If you were to redesign the sport of wrestling or even mixed martial arts to be a better predictor of minds that would perform well in 
a more total war, then you would want some sort of team-based matchup that involves submission only. So basically you have to persuade your opponent to lose in some way and no time limits. Because when there are points, you are going to game the points in the same way that a large organization will eventually game the measurements as repeated over and over again in the very many examples of Goodhart's Law that whenever you have a measurement in an organization it inevitably leads to following and boosting the measurement instead of the purpose of what you were trying to measure. So you kind of have to switch measurements all the time to keep the, the true aim in mind. But that's hard to do with points. And with time, you might, for example, play possum or simply slowly drain your opponent's energy until they are ready to finally give up, which is exactly what the Vietnamese and the Afghans did to the U.S. military. The most powerful military on Earth, with so much more resources, so much energy, at its beck and call than what it was facing, you might say the equivalent of a 300-pound football player with the latest equipment facing a 115-pound girl in a fight. But in this case, the girl was able to, with patience and keeping the aim in mind, eventually win. So, perhaps we're going to need other rule sets and other combat sports to prepare for our next wars so that we may be aware of what our aims are. A long iterated game where you're playing with the same players so where there's identity kept. You're playing many different games over and over again but your identity goes between each game and people remember what happened in the last game is going to have a very different strategy from a game where people don't remember all your other games and where the most important thing is how you did in the last game. So I trust that we will find 
which games suit us best. And if we don't find them, we will surely create them. They're yours, and they're mine. Thank mm-hmm. you.